I'm going to go over just a broad outline to begin with before we open it up, just a broad outline of the four different challenges to empathy that Micha Goodman spoke about in his lecture. Um, one of the reasons that he wanted to talk to us at Hartman uh, about this topic is because he, of course, like so many other people, understand empathy to be really the engine that drives relationship. That in empathizing with other people, that's really where we find connection. So sharing information is one way of kind of getting inside what's happening for somebody because they tell you that. They share with you what they're thinking. Um, and, and he and many others already see that as just kind of a crazy thing <laughs> that we can communicate through language what I'm thinking or feeling, right? And how someone thinks about a situation, how they think about the world, that we can even share that with each other is crazy, is only possible because of language. And as far as we know, human beings are the only ones with a really developed uh, capacity for language and for having that sense of really kind of getting what somebody else is thinking. That's cognitive empathy that I can understand how you see the world in this moment or this situation. I can understand your opinion, you know, how you articulate, how you're experiencing something. That's cognitive empathy. And so he brings scholarship, Micha quotes scholarship that says, that's wonderful, that's amazing, that's a miracle, that's fantastic, cognitive empathy. But what really drives human connection and relationships is emotional empathy. When I feel what you're feeling, and my, to be true to my CPE supervisor, when I was uh, studying uh, chaplaincy in Philadelphia during rabbinical school, my CPE supervisor would say, you can't feel anybody else's feelings but your own. You can't feel what I'm feeling. You can only feel what you're feeling. But what empathy does is, yes, I can't feel literally, I can't feel your sadness but if I'm in empathy, then your sadness triggers my feelings of sadness. So they're not yours. I'm not feeling, so we use that language, but I'm not feeling someone else's feelings. My CPE supervisor was totally right. I can only feel my sadness, but, I, but human beings feel sadness. And so when, if you're sad and I'm really empathetic in that moment with you, then I allow myself to experience my own feelings of sadness that your sadness brings up like triggers in me. That's a good thing. So we use trigger usually as a bad negative word. Um, but in this sense, it's a good, it's a good one, right? This, this sense of allowing someone else's emotions to trigger those same emotions in us. That's emotional empathy. And that is what drives human connection. And, um, and, and that, that empathy uh, is something that we can get better at. And if we can, something we can get better at, then it's also something that we can get worse at, <laughs> right? So for those of you who know that I had hip replacement two years ago, I've not been on my bike since, right? When I get back on that bicycle, I'm not going to be as good a bike rider, as I was before my surgery. It's going to take me some time to regain that skill, to regain a sense of confidence, 
to understand like the, the tipping of the bike and how you have to balance and how your body does that. I'm going to have to relearn a lot of that when I get back on that bicycle. I'm not, my skills have deteriorated. It doesn't mean I won't get good at it. Again, it won't mean I'm not going to be as fantastic as I was. What it means is any skill that we have, that we, uh, that we employ, we can get better at, we can you know, stay in stasis, or we can get worse at. And Micha is very interested in this moment in our history as human beings about um, what's happening, as are many people right now, actually, uh, very interested in what's happening with our empathy skills. And unfortunately, he quoted it in his talk. Now, he gave that talk that you all listened to that, that Rebecca was so great to send out the link for. Thank you, Rebecca. Um, he gave that same talk to our cohort of 27 rabbis who are studying at Hartman. So I heard a different lecture than you did but it's the same material. Like he, he produced, he, uh, so if I say he said something and you're like, no, he didn't, it's just cause he said it to us <laughs> or vice versa. But, um, but, but he was talking about the fact that the empathy as a skill, unfortunately is decreasing among young people. So in the research that they've done on college campuses and nobody's pretending that the research is perfect. No one's pretending that this is the, these are these studies and it's the absolute truth. But if you just take trends, I'm someone who likes to talk more about trends, right? If we watch what's happening with young people on college campuses, taking tests around empathy, empathy has fallen by 40%. Just take that in for a second. 40% decline in empathy. That's really frightening because if that's what drives human relationships and if empathy is what drives compassion and if that's what helps us lean in hard to building a society that's based in equity because we empathize for the people who don't have, then a 40% decline in empathy does not bode well for what a civilization based in justice might look like, right? Because we have to sacrifice in order to give up some of what I have uh, in order for everyone to have enough. I do that out of empathy. And if we don't have that, then our society suffers in, in serious ways. So a 40% decline is a really precipitous drop. The good news is, if it's a skill, then it's a skill that we can strengthen and it's something that we can address, but we have to start paying attention to it and we have to have the language um, to be able to at least have the conversation, which is why this was really exciting uh, for me, um, to, for us to be talking about, because I believe we are the kinds of communities that are going to drive the conversation about things like uh, empathy communally, right? Um, okay. So remember, you can always put it on speaker view. If you're distracted by the lots of boxes, you can just hit speaker view and you'll just see who's talking. <laughs> Me. Um, and then you can always go back to gallery view if you want. All right. So I'm going to, I'm going to move through uh, briefly the four challenges as described by Micha to, um, to empathy, to emotional empathy right now in our time. And the first one uh, that he identifies uh, is technology. 
that as we sit here over technology, <laughs> right? So, and again, these are not people who are looking to trash anything. They're not looking to make huge sweeping statements about good or bad. It's, it's coming at this with a lot of curiosity and just kind of holding this moment because uh, it's never happened before that we have related so much over technology. Never. And it's, it's, a, it's massively changing our ways of communicating. Um, and the changes, because of technology, are happening faster than they've ever happened before. So it's not just how big the change is. It's how quickly change is happening now. It's happening exponentially faster. So we're being asked and our nervous systems are being asked to adjust to so many changes that are happening so quickly that it's really hard for our nervous system to keep up. So one is the obsessive use of technology. Um, obsessive is already a judgment word. I get that. But the fact that we rely so heavily on technology for the ways that we communicate is driving empathy down. So how is it doing that? When we communicate with people over technology, we feel less of their emotional state. Therefore, we are not empathizing the same way. So if uh, Miha said in his lecture, if empathy is a muscle, face-to-face communication is what strengthens empathy, right? So if empathy is a muscle, how do you work that? How do you work out? How do you work out that muscle to get to build it and get it strong? Um, you have face-to-face conversations. The harder the conversation, according to the science, the harder the communication, the harder the conversation is, meaning emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, the harder the conversation is, the more it strengthens the muscle of empathy. And if you don't believe me, think, think back to a massive fight that you had with somebody you love. Massive. And then you worked it through. The amount of empathy that takes to hang with it and to get to the other side of that and work it through somehow, that is a lot of work for the empathy muscle to do. That's the hardest work that muscle ever does is in difficult conversations. And right now, face-to-face conversations about hard stuff is happening less and less. So if you're going to have a really difficult conversation, most people are choosing to do it over technology. People are firing people over technology because they don't want to have to deal. They don't want to have to empathize with the person they're firing. People are breaking up with people on texts. Why? Well, if I'm not going to have to talk to you anymore, why the heck would I want to have that difficult, painful final conversation in person? (laughs) Right? Where I have to feel what you're feeling, or you have to feel what I'm feeling, depends who's breaking up with whom. And so we are not doing the same kind of work that we used to do on building the empathy muscle because we're relying so much on technology. Um, The other thing about communication in terms of emotional empathy and somebody communicating and you picking up on their communication about how they're doing emotionally a lot of that, like most of it, like 80% of it is nonverbal, right? Jim's nodding, right? So I was talking earlier about this with somebody and I said, when I sit with somebody one-on-one in my office and they've got their leg crossed and their foot is going like this, right? 
And they're completely calm, they're completely flat, they're completely still, except their right foot is going like this. Okay, hello. That is screaming that something's going on, right? Like, right? I'll let them talk for as long as they want to like this. And then I'm like, okay, can we talk about the foot? <laughs> Let's talk about what's going on, right? They're agitated and they're not talking about that. They're not communicating it from here up. It's all nonverbal. It's body language. And we are great, much better than we even know at reading body language. All the shrinks present here on Zoom, right? Know exactly what I'm talking about. So do the teachers, right? If you're a really great people person and love people, you're really good at it too, right? At reading the nonverbals. Those of us who grew up in abusive situations, emotionally and psychologically abusive, I can walk in and my, my therapist used, used to say, I could blindfold you, Amy, blindfold you and put you in a room of 500 per people. It would take you 20 seconds to find the loneliest person in the room. Why? Because you have the antenna that developed to keep you alive. You know, I knew by how my mother closed the front door, what kind of a day it was going to be for the rest of the day. So we, we have this ability, this amazing ability to read all of these nonverbals that you can't get on Zoom. So if you're watching people communicate from here up, it's, it's hard to read the totality of their nonverbal communication. So that's one thing that's stunting our ability to really connect empathetically, emotionally to what's happening for people. The other thing is that in face-to-face -face communication, Micha talked about um, eye contact is really important. Looking each other in the eye. You'll notice there are some people who can't look you in the eye, right? If somebody can't look me in the eye, okay. <laughs> or sometimes something's going on here. Um, so looking people in the eye is very intimate. But on Zoom, I'm looking all of you in the eye, but it means I'm looking down to look at your eyes. And you're all looking down to look at my eyes, but we're not looking at each other's eyes, right? We're not looking each other in the eye. This is really, really, well, thanks, Ed. One of the things that is compromising um, our ability to truly be um, empathically present to the person that we're uh, talking to and, and talking with. So, so the empathy, the emotional empathy muscles aren't getting the workout that they need um, in part due to the way we're communicating, which is um, over technology. All right. Number two that Micha talked about was uh, someone named Goldman, Daniel Goldman, I think, um, did this research on what is another way that people, do, what is another block, another challenge to empathy? And they're finding that it's distraction. To really be able to empathize, you have to be paying attention. You cannot empathize with somebody if they don't have your attention. Um, I, I even see it when my kid is on her phone and I've said something twice, and now I'm going to say it for the third time, right? <laughs> and if she's on her technology, and I'll be like, Eliana. And she looks up and I say it for the third time, and there's this whole, like, oh, like, right? <laughs> she's, she's able to get what's going on with me just because she looked at me and gave me her attention, so they did this study where they had an actor behaving as he was really needing, as if he was really needing something on the side of the road. I don't know if you remember Micha talking about this. And they did a study of who stopped to help. 
What was their age? What was their race? How similar or dissimilar were they, were they to the person that was suffering? Um, like, did they look like they were hurrying or walking slowly? Were they walking with another person? Were they walking alone? They, they measured all of the factors, age, ability, everything. Only one factor determined whether people would stop to help. And that was, were they paying attention? One factor made the difference. Nothing else correlated. So what, what does that mean? That means that our, and people who are smart in the, in the business world know this. And so they're constantly trying to grab your attention. That is what they consider success, right? Like I remember my daughter had a toy that when she put it down would say, play with me play with me. It's like, oh my God, the toy is, 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 is going after her attention. Like what? Like what? Like it was so scary because, because the hunch is correct in grabbing our attention. We're not paying attention to a bunch of other stuff. And the less we have control over where we place our attention the less control we have over whether or not we're available to be empathetic with what's happening for somebody else. All right. Um, and that, uh, and Amicha also uh, was drawing attention to the fact that our attention has shrunk um, as the machines in our pocket keep grabbing our attention, right? So every time our text dings, or even if you have it on vibrate, right? If it's, if you can hear it vibrate or feel it vibrate, it's already caught your attention. So our attention keeps being pulled out of having it free to feel empathy for someone else. The third factor that he describes uh, is that we know this, that we are designed, um, we are put together in such a way that we have more empathy for people in the in-group than people who are in the out-group us and them. And we are designed to have more empathy for people like us than them. I mean, it's one of the ways we survived, right? It's how we're wired. It's how we evolved is that if someone's coming over the ridge, you don't know what diseases they're carrying. I'm not saying that our ancestors would have spoken like this, but if you just randomly grabbed everybody in and pulled them in, it's a threat to the in-group. People died, right? Because they didn't have immunities to the bugs that the other clan has. So we, we, we are designed to have, feel closer to and have more emotional empathy for people who are like us, who are part of our in-group, whatever that is, whatever factors you use to determine that. Um, and when you see someone suffering, if they're like you, you have greater empathy than if they are not like you. And they did lots of studies um, testing the parameters of this, um, like, you know, giving someone an electric shock on the other side, you know, that you, I see someone get a shock, the closer that person is to me in terms of my, me identifying them as being like me, the more empathy I feel when they get shocked. So that's, and again, it's not a judgment, it's just the reality. Our in-group instincts, therefore, he said, bring out the best in us. And the reverse is true, right? When it's someone from the out group, right? We paint folks with a big, broad brush. 
but but in group dynamics can move us out of our own sense of ego focus, our own sense of self, and can you know broaden our ability to be present to other people because they're like us. And out group does the same thing in the reverse, right? And so you have things like racism, xenophobia, right? All those things that come up because someone is not like us. Someone's in the out group. So uh, he then spoke about, which is really sad. It was so sad. It made me so sad. He talked about the empathy paradox. So that if the people I feel the most empathy for are the most like me, then the people who need it the most get the least empathy from me, right? So people who are like me tend to be educated, pretty, you know, financially stable, emotionally stable. (laughs) Maybe I shouldn't go that far, but like, so, but they tend to be, the, the, the people who need our empathy the most are people who are homeless, are people who are, Vulnerable are people who are living at the edges and the margins and are hungry and are struggling to get an education or struggling to have familial relationships that are safe. You know, whatever it is, the people who are most vulnerable in society are the ones often that we see as being least like us. And therefore, they, it's the least natural place for us to feel empathy. And Micha talked about the real challenge in Israel that Israel is a pretty homogenous society in terms of who's like me, the haves are pretty, it's pretty homogenous. The people in Israel who struggle the most are the people who are most not like Micha Goodman. And so he was saying the the very Palestinians, the, you know, folks coming in from Yemen or wherever, Ethiopia, the people least like Micha Goodman said Micha Goodman, are the people who need him and his in-group's empathy the most. And it's the least natural place for us to give it. All right. The last one, and he gave lots of examples of this third one. And he looks at Jewish source material and finds some really groovy stuff in there. And I just want to give one thought from the a lot of material that he covered, which is that we are a people who depends a lot on our story as being the oppressed, the marginalized, the, the, the weak. That's our core narrative. And that has allowed the Jewish people to empathize with a lot of other kinds of who we define as the in-group in some ways in our mythic narrative are the people who are marginalized. That's why so many Jews were marching in the civil rights era at their own peril. Because we tell that story about ourselves. So we actually, in some ways, have a really unique, what was that quote that Jews earn like Episcopalians and vote like Puerto Ricans? Right? So it's like, why is that? Because our story is that we're the underdog. He said, you Kiddush is not about King David conquering Jerusalem. Where are the Jewish holidays that celebrate Jewish power? That celebrate that we came out of slavery and took over Canaan? Uh, we don't have those. We don't have those holidays, right? Rebecca, you didn't miss it in religious school. You did not miss it. We don't have those holidays, Our holidays are we were slaves in Egypt. 
right? <laughs> right? Our whole Torah ends where we're still in the flipping desert, people. We don't even make it. <laughs> like, like our whole core narrative. My father was a wandering Aramean. Avraham is a refugee. Avraham is an immigrant to Canaan. We don't say we were born here and we're the biggest and the brightest and the smartest and the strongest. We were born on this land. We are of this land. We took this land. He was an immigrant. He was a refugee. That's our story. So who were some of the first to stand up against what was happening at the border? Jews. It was us. That's our core narrative. And so Micha is saying that often in terms of claiming our story, owning our story, entering our story as Jews is how we're often moved to a place of empathy with other people. And that what happens is we get charged with y'all think y'all are so special. Y'all think y'all are so great. Y'all keep talking about the Jews and the Jews this and the Jews that. Because if everybody dug in to their core narratives that say this was us, then we can empathize with everybody else that's happening too. All right. Which I think is a really important point right now. In an age of, you know, people really pushing for universalism, not that there's anything wrong with, with having universal values or a connection to all peoples, I get that. Micha is saying, though, that in teaching our kids, it was we who were slaves in Egypt. We are activating empathy for others who are enslaved, for others who are disempowered, for others who are at the margins and are in danger. Um, and I think that's a really important point that, um, that I'm going to need to really chew on for a bit. Because I had, I had one of our young adults come at me after we uh, put out that video around uh, when the riot, when the riot, I, I hate it that that word is in my head somewhere. When the protests happened um, after George Floyd, you know, we were doing these videos every week. We were doing these, shooting these videos. We're still shooting these videos every week. They'd been very silly, very lighthearted. And we started them because we wanted to reach people in a lighthearted way before Shabbat, just because it was so grim, right? Everything was just so hard. And people really appreciated it. But then came George Floyd and the protests. And we felt like it was going to be completely tone deaf for us to send out some silly Shabbat video, um, and so we instead had each of us wearing a mask and we held up signs from our tradition that say things like, do not stand idly by the, idly by the blood of your neighbor, mute and listening. You know, what, all these signs and uh, many of them from the Jewish tradition, when, you know, when it was time for them to come for me, there was no one left, right, to stand up, you know, all, all, the, all those things. And this young adult who was raised in our community said, I'm really disappointed in KI, Rabbi, and I needed to talk to you about it. I said, okay. And he said, you somehow are equating the oppression and suffering that the Jewish people have felt with racism in this country. And that's wrong. And that is, it is minimizing the suffering of African-Americans in this country by you pretending on any level that we as Jews know anything of the kind of pain and routine discrimination and suffering that's happened by black people in this country. And I had to like take a breath and like, you know, like figure out how to have this conversation. And I wish I'd listened to Micha's lecture before that phone call, because I mean, I tried to articulate as closely as I could. This moves a lot of our people to justice work. The fact that we
we get it. It happened to us. We are not saying if only they would pull themselves up by the bootstraps. It was us. We can't ever otherize people who are being oppressed and marginalized, ever. Um, But I wish I'd had this language that when we can dig into our own story and identify with our own story of oppression, oppression is not a zero-sum game. Just because I suffer doesn't mean you didn't. We're not, it's not a comparison. It's not a contest. We're not in the, at Hartman, they call it the suffering Olympics. We're not in the suffering Olympics. Nobody wins a gold medal. <laughs> we all medal because we're human, right? Um, and, and so, but I wish I'd had some of this language that by identifying with our own story of oppression, it strengthens our ability to empathize with other people and see them as us. And that that is something we are sorely lacking uh, in today's world. So that was number three was, um, what, what was it? Uh, so number three was uh, we have more, more empathy for the in-group and sort of related to that is number four. The last, the fourth challenge to, uh, to empathy right now in our time, which is political polarization. That everything, as we now know, we used to joke that that's a huge, broad generalization. Not anymore. Everything has been politicized. Everything. When mask wearing and science becomes politicized on the nightly news, there's always been people who did that. That's fine. But when it becomes the dominant trope, everything has been politicized. And we were moving and moving and moving in that direction. Lots of people had started articulating this, that everything has become about politics. Um, That now, though, that binary has become so strong that each political side sees the other as an existential threat. And when we see a position and a person who holds that position as an existential threat, that threat is very hard to empathize. It's very hard to empathize over the barrier that you're a threat to my existential being. It's, it's almost impossible to empathize over that, over that, uh, Boundary. Um, meaning we have to stop, we have to stop making the other the existential threat, right? It's not saying we can't empathize with people on a different political spectrum from us. That's not, that's not the point. The point is when you make that other position an existential threat to your own, it is almost impossible to empathize with how that person is experiencing the world, how that person thinks about the world, right? So the work is how do we move from you're a threat, you're going to bring the whole thing down around my kid's ears. How do we move from that to holding that conversation with some curiosity? How in the world, Jim Lieberfarb, did you get to that position? You're a good guy. I know you. You're a good guy. You're an intelligent guy. How did you reach that conclusion, right? That led you to vote yes on that particular political, whatever. If we can really hold it with some curiosity, then we have room, right, to start working the muscles that allow me to then maybe hear you, even though I don't agree, and be able to to respond, right, from a place of, uh, of some kind of association or, or, or identification with at least your way of seeing that. 
Um, and Dana just put in the chat, yes, um, Micha used the language of radical listening uh, in quoting Gilligan. He quoted Carol Gilligan's work, and she talks about the path to empathy is holding things, listening with real curiosity, and she called it radical listening because it doesn't come naturally. Like if someone's talking, you're going, nah, 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 that's not how I see it. That's not my experience, <laughs> right? Like when we can really do radical listening, it means listening out of a, a real sense of curiosity and really trying to self-correct uh, all the time uh, to move from, from, you know, judging something as a threat to holding it with real uh, curiosity. Um, and, uh, and, and so a lot of the political stuff is cognitive empathy, not necessarily emotional empathy, but that we are de in desperate need of, of cognitive empathy where it comes to ideas, right? And so, um, so Micha said, real cognitive empathy is about understanding how and why you think you're right, right? We, we tend to just say, well, of course, well, I know I'm right. I just want to hear, I know you're wrong, but I'm willing to listen to why you're, how you got to wrong, Right. And that um, that real cognitive empathy is about understanding how and why we think we are right. All right. So I'm going to stop there. Um, and Jim is saying the process of losing self or, or selflessness. Right. So that, that that's the work It's kind of getting out of our of our own way. So um, if you would like to say something, if you want to raise your hand, if you want to use the raise hand function, um, then, and you can unmute yourself if you would like to say something. So Judith, do you want to say something? In addition to his radical listening, he talked about intellectual elasticity, where if you look at someone and say, you're crazy, it ends all possibilities of conversation. But if you listen and ask them, as you mentioned, so how did you get to that position, James? How did you get to that idea? that opens up a possibility of conversation. And that's what we too often cut apart, cut out when we're afraid of what someone else believes or thinks or says. Nice. So that whole idea of um, elasticity, right? And, and we know that the brain is really elastic. Like we know that, but we, we don't often employ it, right? Like really try to use it when it's something distasteful to us. We love it when it's, I got to figure out how to get back on my bike then we love it that our brain is elastic. We don't, we don't tend to employ it as much when it's about, I'm gonna need to try to understand something that's super uncomfortable for me to relate to. Barbara? I liked how he talked about listening with curiosity and to ask questions based on curiosity as opposed to judgment. I think that's a very powerful statement. Right, and, and what if we really did, what if we really were curious? Not just ask questions and, and like, and, but what if we really were a little more curious about how people arrive, you know, at their positions or at their conclusions? Wouldn't that be cool? Because I know it would feel a lot more comfortable for me, right? Right. Because right? often if I'm asking a question, I'm like, okay, how in the world do you think that <laughs> <Right>? doesn't work? <laughs> I am really wanting an answer. Like it's, it's, an, it's when it's uncomfortable for us, it's right. It's hard to employ real elasticity and, 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 uh, and curiosity. Jim. I have different thoughts and I may be all over the place, but, um, 
number one, you know, really being the practice of being an engaged listener, you know, uh, and quieting of just not responding and not listening how I'm going to respond to somebody. It's just to, like, I'm looking at you right now. You, you were, were engaged in eye contact. And just be there and not, I have an answer, or I'm going to fix you, or I'm going to, you know, is to do that. Um, another thing, another thought, um, when you get down to the root of all this, and, and it's just my opinion, it's a lot of fear, yeah. but it's the process of unpacking the fear, you know, which is, a, you know, and now I, I went through a workshop related to the 12, an intensive year round workshop on the 12, the 12 steps of recovery. And, you know, obviously one of the steps is the fourth step to three legged soul, a, a deep analysis of resentments, a, a fear inventory, you know, and it kept going. And part of the fear is, you know, now what? And now what? And keep breaking it down. And what will happen? And it's like, you know, and that you know, it, basically people are afraid of losing something that they have or not getting what they want. The other thing, um, as it relates to, you know, our plight is, or our ancestors or people who were in the Holocaust and, you know, uh, African-Americans, Black Lives Matters, and it really hit to me on a deeper level, is I, I wasn't, I did not have parents who were in the Holocaust. I was born in 1955. I'm only 10 years removed from when the, the concentration camps were liberated or that 10, that 15 year period. So it does have an effect on me, even though I wasn't directly or I had interest. It's still part of my Jewish gestalt and how I related it to you know, uh, African-Americans, black people, whatever, even though I was not a slave or my ancestor, and we could never understand what that felt. But I, you know, but I understand because of as much as I have a sensitivity to what happened in the Holocaust, given the proximity of time that I was from that, here are a, a race of people that were in bondage like that. And that has transpired over hundreds of years. So it allows me the opportunity to empathize, even though it's not directly, is that even people who are, you know, they had descend, several generations descendants of being slaves or impacted by Jim Crow, they've been impacted either. And it continues to be that way. Yeah. So what I'm getting at is if I could understand, bring what my sense is to how I'm sensitive to being a Jew, what happened to, to Jews in the Holocaust, and bring that empathy to other people, even though it's not the same story, it allows me to have understanding that they have feelings, they have sensitivity, they, you know, and, and it's still going on. There's still, you know, this this being being objectified or being being the object of racism yes and so that's that that's the goal 
is, is right. I think Micha's point was the goal is for you to associate strongly with the Holocaust in a way that allows you to empathize with other people. When Jews make me nuts about the Holocaust, out of the Holocaust experience, is when it's PTSD Judaism that I'm dealing with, and I'm dealing with particularly people's reactions around Israel. I watch perfectly rational, intelligent Jews go nuts. The frontal lobes go offline, the amygdala starts screaming, they try to kill us, they still wanna kill us, right? And, and there's no, there's very little rational conversation that flows from there. So like, that's the goal. How do we take our suffering and, and memories of that and real feelings of that? So even though you, it's 10 years out for your pick, that was the silent era where nobody was talking about it, but it defined a generation of Jews and it's PTSD. So, yeah. so how do I, how do I make, sh- how do I make sure I'm trying to channel as best I can all of that pain, fear, suffering, darkness, whatever, to a place of empathy rather than a place of fear and reactivity. That's, a, that's our work. I feel like that's a lot of the work of the Jews right now is how, is how to do that. Eileen? I was just thinking about the radical list, the listening idea and people that know how to do this really well. It's like a combination of acting and journalism I mean, when an actor tries to study a, um, a role to play a part of somebody who's very different than himself or herself, they have to ask a whole series of questions as to how did, how did you get like that? If I, I, you're, I'm not anything like you, but I have to play this role. So they dive into that in a way that those of us who are not actors could possibly learn how to do when talking with somebody else. I was thinking about what this world needs now is a lot of people talking to their high school graduating class. Because in their high school graduating class, especially if they're out all and around, many of them are not in the same political mindset and they're, they're in a different silo. And yet you knew them when they were, nobody had any politics. <laughs> all you were doing is having fun together and living. So that gives you a sense of caring about the other person. And then you have an opportunity to explore what their thinking is now and how they got to where they are. I mean, I can think, as this discussion is going on, I can think of people that, I don't know if I'm going to do it, but I could think of people that I could call and say, we knew each other back when. Would you like to have a conversation about this? Of course, the other person has to want to. But anyway, that's just what I uh, what I was thinking about. And the one other thing I wanted to say is I recently finished watching a series that I thought was excellent on television, you know, the binge watch thing. <clears throat> it's called The French Village. Maybe some of you have seen it. It's seven seasons and it goes, it starts before World War II and goes beyond World War II. They never go into the... Uh, concentration camps they never go into um you know the actual fighting it's what was going on in a village in Vichy France and it's fascinating because nobody's there's no heroes and there's there's somebody everybody's gray 50 shades of gray becomes a whole different meaning and you see them change over time and you become empathetic how it was not an easy time 
Right. We can have, you know, well, I'll just leave it there. But anyway, it's called A French Village, and uh, I think it starts on Amazon Prime. Anyway. And, and people did it well and not so well then, right? And there's a lot of people who irritated the crap out of me in high school. Like just because we went to high school together didn't mean they weren't idiots. <laughs> you know, like, or, that I, right? or they didn't irritate. Like, wait, because so many of those things were in place then, right? It was hard then, right, to, to empathize with, with people who are, you know, radically uh, on the other side of some stuff. But, but to your point about actors, I'm not so sure, yes, we need to do what actors do, but I think actors are also just really good. If they're good at their craft, they're really good at empathy, Right. They're really good about I'm going to really put myself in the position of how would this character have arrived. Right. At a place where they'd be willing to do X. And 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 to really go there is sometimes really difficult for actors. Right. It's really painful because for them to really understand and therefore be able to portray out of any sense of authenticity, a person being comfortable doing what their character is going to have to do on the screen and their character's comfortable with it, it means they have to feel some super uncomfortable feelings to get to that place, right? Because empathy, if we do it right, it, it's not easy unless somebody's feeling ecstatic and wonderful and happy, right? Empathy with folks who are depressed or, or lonely or in pain or in sad and in agony, like that, that's really hard for us to empathize with because it means we're going to have to feel that. So, right, we need to figure out how to, how to figure out how to play each other on TV, <laughs> right? How, how could somebody actually get to that place? And, and then you have to put yourself really in their shoes to figure out how that might have happened for that person. And that's not, that's not easy to do. Judith, is your hand raised again? Go ahead. One thing that I found very beautifully done by Mika, is that his name? Mika. Uh, Mija, that caused us to empathize with him was say, you'll have to excuse me because I make mispronunciations. English is not my native language. Well, suddenly I was really listening and thinking, oh my goodness, what a good speaker. It, it was an example of what he would like us to be able to try to do. Right. He, he is a beautiful model of so many of the things that that uh, are right and good and true, right? Uh, he seemed to be. He's, I asked him one time, I said, like on campus, I said, are you always smiling? <laughs> like, like just always. Uh, but, um, and I love the story he told about the couple that went out to dinner and the waiter, it took them like, you know, forever to get to yes. drink. And then the drink, it took 30 minutes for the drink to come. And then they put in an appetizer order, and that took another half an hour. Everybody was upset. They were really frustrated, and they were getting really angry and ready to call the manager and ready to walk out. And then they started a conversation about remembering when they were in college, and they waited tables and how hard that work was. And then they looked around the restaurant and realized that he was the only only one waiting on, like, 25 tables when your ratio is supposed to be one waiter to eight tables for you to give really good service. Um, and he was waiting on like 21 tables or something. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden it wasn't him being a lousy waiter. It, and they left this huge tip. They left like a hundred, a hundred dollar tip. Um, and they said they weren't tipping him. They were tipping themselves when they were young. 
that was right. Great. That that's that's empathy, right? Is oh wait, right? That's that that was us. And remember what yes. that felt like? Remember when somebody called in sick, you know, and you were now waiting twenty one tables and how impossible that is and like so but I, but I just love that example. It's such a crystallized example yes. of what we what we can do when we choose to, right, in terms of empathy. Dana? Is he a Sabra? Is he a Sabra? Yes. Micha, yes. Okay. But he, he was raised by English-speaking parents. And he speaks beautiful English. Beautiful English. Dana? I, you know, I did think about when uh, he spoke about a leader – of our country, you know, having to talk to everybody, even the deplorables. And in my mind, when we imagine if I was the president or if I was a leader, and I know my voice was going out to everybody, you know, I think this is a great way to to step back and think, you know, not even to look at, at all the people in the world as deplorables. Like even someone who does a heinous crime, you know, you kind of think, I wonder what how they were raised or something. And I, I mean, is the point of empathy at some point to problem solve and take action? I know that's not what you're talking about now, but I just wanted to make that comment that, you know, like in my classroom, there's all kinds of kids, you know? You can't think one's deplorable and one's not. You've got to just look at them and hear them all. So that was my point, the deplorable point. Yeah, and... Um... Is it always going to fix everything? No, it's going to take lots of things that are going to, you know, be the, are going to define the actions that we're going to take to make things right and better. But empathy is one of the main drivers. I, I think he was trying to say, cause he, cause he goes to Jeremiah, right. And, and he goes to the, the text of the prophets, like, you know, that, that you're, you're focusing on your temple ritual, you focusing on doing your sacrifices beautifully in exactly the right way with these really expensive animals. That is, that's going to get you thrown out of the land. That's going to get you exiled from the land. It has to be the opposite that you stop caring so much about the temple ritual and start carrying, caring about honesty and weights and measures and in business, right? Giving equal access to all kinds of kids to an education, giving access to the orphan and the widow and the whoever, you know, to shelter, to ways of empowering themselves and fulfilling their own unique potential, right? It's a, so yes, it's supposed to result in us, I think, building a society reflective of what empathy would call us to, right? Like the, so yeah, so the, it isn't just to have it as an ideal and an idea so that I'm a better person, it's that when we empathize, it brings out the best in us, and therefore it brings out the best in our society, which is what the prophets were yelling and screaming about, right? That, um, that there was too much focus on my ritual and my performing of those rituals and what that's going to do for me and me, 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 or even God, 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 God. <laughs> you know, Jeremiah <laughs> is yelling and screaming, forget about God. What does God want from you? God wants for you to treat your neighbor better than you are. Not steal from them. And, and by steal, I mean, you know, look at our corporations, not paying taxes, whatever, fill in the blank. Stealing is, is broad in how we define that. So, so yes, I think Micha quoting the prophets is Micha saying the point is to change society for the better because we change for the better. And empathy is a big, big driver of that. Because if I really feel that kid's pain in your classroom 
how can I not do something about it? Right? Like, that's why stuff doesn't happen. Because we're not really affected by it. We're not really impacted by it. If we really go to a place of empathy, then I feel that suffering and I'm going to want to do something about it. And um, as long as we put people away and don't have to look at it, them, their reality, and don't have to confront it. Like I loved when, when people would hear that I was from Georgia when I was living in Minnesota and they're like, oh, it's so racist down there. And how did you come out of, you know, a place like the South? And I'm just like, because it's so easy for you white Midwesterners to not be racist <laughs> when you don't ever see a black person. Like, what? <laughs> like, you think you're not racist because you don't ever confront, you don't ever confront anybody who's different than you. It's really easy then, isn't it? To, <laughs> anyway, you know, the, the point being, if you, it, when you confront it and see it and empathize with it, it's something that you address and it's something that you take on and it's something that you hopefully um, want to change for the better. Bert? I don't know whether this was part of his lecture at all, but there's also the issue of powerlessness, of having empathy and yet feeling so powerless because the amount of suffering in the world is so overpowering that what can one do? And I think that part of the issue that we have today is, you know, we have enough trouble saving one person or two people and, and, and people just can't deal with it. And not because they don't have empathy, but to some sense they have too much empathy yeah. and then that shuts them down. Yeah. So that, yeah. So it's a good point that that's another set of challenges for us is when we empathize, but feel like we can't do anything to change a situation. Right. So that's, that's definitely, that's definitely a challenge for sure. I, I can give you an example. I was in uh, Sudan a number of years ago and you walk through in, in Khartoum and I, you know, walking through the market, the sheer amount of suffering of, the children, how in the world, what reaction can I possibly have that will do anything for them? And it's really, really difficult. I think part of the answer to that is that we can't fix the whole world and try and fix a little part of it, whether it be through things like Ed does with El Nido or, you know, one of the ways that I tried to deal with it also when I lived in, in Russia, I had a Sadaka pocket and I had a pocket with change in it. I'd always keep change in it. And when I saw somebody, whatever, I just take out a piece of change and give it to them. I remember Rabbi Ruben years ago had uh, these envelopes in which he put a, uh, a McDonald's uh, $1 certificate or something like that and always carry them around with him. Because if we can't do anything then there's, we just end up doing nothing. You know, and there's a little adage from our tradition. It's not on you to finish the work. Neither are you free to desist from beginning it. Rabbi Tarfon. There you go. We, gotta, we have to hold that all the time. And there's a reason these aphorisms are popular, right? It's because it's really helpful. It's not on you. You don't have to finish it, but we have to remind ourselves of that because it's so hard, 
right? And so painful, for sure. And we can't let ourselves get into hopelessness or the whole project is a disaster. George? Well, first of all, I'm one of those people who think they're out to kill us. And uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, we have Iran, the Hamas, Farrakhan, uh, they're out to kill us. Uh, on the other hand, I also think that the, the way to do it, the empathy word is terrific. Uh, I've used in some of your productive action. And one of the things that the, the Jewish organizations, there's a great many Jewish organizations now that are supporting Black Lives Matter, despite the fact that many of the leaders in Black Lives Matter are indeed anti-Semitic and followers of Farrakhan. Uh, but I think we still have to take, in this country, uh, productive action and empathy. I don't know what we do about uh, Iran and Hamas. That's a way beyond. They want to kill us. They've said it, uh, and they try. Uh, here, with at least most of the blacks, I think, uh, we can join with them and then work with education and discussions and many of the things that uh, already been discussed here. Great. Thank you, George. Uh, just because I'm paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get me. <laughs> right. So, right. So I appreciate that. And I'm, and so I think, you know, part of it is, is it not an attempt to be naive so much as it is there, even if we're talking about black lives matter, their anti-Semitism is not a threat to me. I don't experience it as a threat. So I have a choice. And like you said, only in getting to know people, only in sharing and in, in, in increasing empathy on both sides, do we start to put an end to anti-Semitism that's about ignorance. Anti-Semitism coming out of Iran? Forget about it. It's an agenda, right? <laughs> They're using anti-Semitism to further an agenda. That's a whole different matter that I'm going to let Israel deal with on the one hand. Um, in terms of that existential threat, Israel's not going to allow herself to have Iran end her existence. It's not going to happen. Uh, and the U.S. won't allow it either. So, like, I, you know, again, there, there are ways to work towards, you know, to, to influence, and we should be influencing politics, and we should be influencing policies, and we should be working to do that, right? And, uh, and at the same time, to, 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 to try to find the places we can work together with people who are really different from us, right? That we don't have to agree on everything and we don't have to share alignment on lots of things for us to do some things together out of a sense of both caring about that and, and empathizing with, you know, with each other. Ed, did you have your hand up? I did. There's so much to say <laughs> and so little time. I love that, Mr. Lurker. Come on, share. Uh First of all, the Micah's talk, I listened to it yesterday. It was terrific. I suggest it to everybody. It ties stuff together in a way that I never thought about. Old biblical stuff, Talmudic stuff, today, and blah, blah, blah. But the two points I wanted to make for purposes of our conversation is neither empathy nor authentic curiosity is easy. Right. We tend to think there's some, oh, yeah, I'm empathic, or I'm curious. No, 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 no. This takes it to an entirely different level. Empathy training, there are classes. I mean, I took them. Uh, they were part of my, my training. 
learning how to really tune in to being empathic in the way that we are capable of. We are, we are programmed from our DNA to be empathic. Most men, unfortunately, are trained out of empathy. Mothers have acute empathy for babies to be able to tell a baby who can't speak. They can tell the difference of a cry, a cry that might die. I'm full of shit. I, or I am hungry or I need to be held or I'm just listening to the sound of my voice. That kind of empathic resonance tuning in is possible for all of us to be able to learn. But it takes huge amount of practice. It's a lot of work. And it's painful. Because you start, if you remember, I think it was the empath on Star Trek. She could pick up all kinds of stuff. And it's... Deanna Troy. Yeah. And you've got to really stop it. You want to turn it off. I had to do that early in my training, too. Learn to stop being empathic for a while. Because it's so painful. Which, and curiosity, is not the kind of curiosity that says as you were illustrating, how the fuck did you come to that point of view? Excuse me? That's not exactly curiosity. You know what I'm saying? To really be curious, you've got to suspend an internal operation. The same way you have to suspend internal operations with empathy to be able to be fully receptive to the other person. So the questioning of curiosity is really subtle. Which leads me to my last point. Um, and I'm almost losing it. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Empathy. Uh, <laughs> we have deep empathy for that situation. And <laughs> deep if empathy. If back, I will chime back in. Because right. it's an important point. Right. <laughs> so, right. So um, that we're hardwired for empathy, for sure. Thank God, right? You know, that, that, that we're designed that way if we can strengthen that muscle and as much as we're empathic with infants it's even harder when they're teenagers oh my god one of the things that we are taught too i heard every several people saying it we comment on what are you going to do what are you going to do and that a typical american way is we got to do something instead of being with it instead of merely not merely holding somebody else's pain not i can't fix it i can't stop it but to sit with it it's much easier to give a, 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 a McDonald's card to somebody than to sit and listen to their story, to listen to their pain. You can't fix it. You can't take it away, but you can be there. So we, there's a lot we can do, and that's one of them. We can be a real good container and listener to other people's anguish and pain and so that they can feel they're connected and not alone which is a gift. That's a gift. In a, and I think most therapists will tell you that 50, 60% of therapy is just that. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. For sure. For sure. Being a witness and being truly present uh, and hearing people is huge. We're not taught how to do it very well these days. Um, but, but I think it's not an either or, right? I think that we need to absolutely be present to each other and give that to people because that's super hard to give often particularly in more challenging, you know, emotional states. But, um, but also, hopefully, it does lead us to build a society that is more supportive of equity, right, out of a sense of, of compassion and empathy for the other, which is really us, right, um, too. And, and, and compassion fatigue, when I first learned that term, I mean, it, it was really helpful for me, right, that we have to also know our limits, 
We have to know when I need to step back from truly being present because it's costing me too much in too many ways now. And instead, I'm going to give a McDonald's gift certificate, right? That's what I can do today um, in this particular situation, given my particular situation, right? So part of it is about having that same ability to hold our own states with curiosity our, and be empathetic with ourselves and to really check in and do a good job of that. Because otherwise, we can trample all over our own vulnerabilities and times where we're really not strong enough to be present to somebody else's pain because our own is, is about to swamp us. Um, Judith, did you have something else you wanted to say? You have not mentioned his conversation about Joe, which was extensive and I thought very interesting. Uh, would you comment on why he um, dwelt so heavily on Joe? Well, bec- I think it's a new reading of Job for a lot of us. A lot of us, mm-hmm. like, I've, not, I've never liked that story. I've never liked that text. I hate the God of that story a lot. Um, I don't relate to the God of the story of Job at all. Um, so it was, it was interesting that he, he flipped it, right, talking about Job's friends. Right. That, it know, became that, about his friends, not about Job. Job's right. friends came, came and sat with him, you know, and grieved with him and shut up and didn't try to say anything to make it better. They just sat with him in his pain and his grief. That, 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 was, that, that was an example of true empathy. And that's, it's when they started questioning him and started pushing back on, well, blah, blah, blah. Then Job, right, then it flips it right out of Job feeling their presence in what he's experiencing as they start to need to defend God, right? Because mm-hmm. they don't want to be in relationship to a God that would do something unjust, God forbid. So, um, so they start to defend, have to defend God, which means they have to question Job about how he might have deserved this. And that was his illustration of them stepping out of empathy right and then and then it just makes job feel alone and lonely and isolated uh in in his grief Um, i kept thinking about why bad things happen to good people the book that was very popular (laughs) a while back and how this was kind of an illustration of that story with a flip to it right and that uh he was talking about i'm looking at my notes uh that uh God is angry at Eliphaz, Job's mm-hmm, friend, best friend, biblical theology, right, to, to deal mm-hmm. with the situation. So when God gets mad that, that they're defending God, <laughs> right? Um, and then he says, when we use ideology to see people, we don't see people. We see ideology, right? Yeah. You know, when we use ideology to experience, you know, uh, being there with people, we're not or not there with people. We don't, we don't see them. And when we categorize the world, we don't see people. And everything can lead us to a place of not seeing people. When you see the world through a lens of, he gave the examples of Zionism, feminism, capitalism, any way of seeing the world can block our ability right. to see people when we're only seeing it through that lens. And that ideologies challenge empathy uh, seriously right and the difference between the Torah's approach and the Talmud's approach also I had never realized quite what that balance was the Talmud's about questioning it's about asking questions and arguing from different perspectives and that that you know that's a shift out of the biblical um, narrative Dana what were you saying about it's about Job 
I just read a book from the library, and maybe I thought of reading it because I heard it in the lecture, but it was called um, When Bad Things Happen to a Good Person, and it's about <laughs> Joe. No, no, no. It was written after his very popular yeah. book. After Kushner? Yeah. By, by Kushner. Oh, it's by, this one's by oh, Kushner. Also. Yeah. Yeah. He just wrote about one person, which is Job. You know, Job led a good life. And he talked a lot about, I can't remember, because it's just so, you know, high up there. Um, but he taught, I think at one point he said the Torah doesn't really teach you about, like, what God is. It t- tells you how God acts. And that what God is is something that we have to uh, experience. Anyway. This is Kushner? Yeah. 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 That's, very, that's very Kushner. Yeah. I didn't realize he, he lost a son to a yucky disease. It was that's so when, interesting. That's when he wrote When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Right. And you know what's interesting about these books is he's narrating it. It's like listening to Michael Good- Michael Goodman. You know, when you hear the person talk about these ideas it just is it's like listening to you love you dana (laughs) yeah ed's laughing yeah it's like he's like that wasn't obvious Um, (laughs) thank you dana um i i take i take them all and keep them a little book all of those comments and who made them so yeah dana you got you got a point so um ken wants to say something and then we'll probably move just a comment about Kushner, uh, which sort of plays into some of the concerns I had in reading yesterday's. Uh, Micah, I assume, is a rabbi? Is it not a PhD? Or what is his training? He is Dr. Micha Goodman. Medical doctor? No, a PhD. Uh, Kushner's book was not wide bad things happen to good people, but when uh, good things happen to people. So that confusion between the when and the why is part of this this uh, this narrative that we read yesterday. Many ask the question, why is this happening? When the real, the only answer we can do from our part is when this happens, what we can do for it. So a lot of the problems that we see in the world is that we people stop and keep asking why are they doing this why is it why is my life so so burdened uh, when the real focus has to be on when something happens so thank Along- you for thank you for that ken that's really important that um that's that's the prob that's where we move into the problematics of the job story is when his friends start to try to answer the question why would God cause this kind of suffering to a righteous person? You're exactly right. That's the moment, Micha says, they switch into ideology to answer the why question when what Job wanted was for them to be present to when this happens, I need yeah. you to sit down and shut up like you did before. The, uh, the other question I had, I only heard it mentioned once, uh, biblical problems uh, that we run into when we're referring back to how to treat a stranger. Uh, and the answer, the universal answer is that we use our memory of what it was like to be slaves it is a difficult thing to, to focus all our attention on. But what uh, another answer to it, which I didn't hear at least another 
Another answer that I see in a biblical answer is when God created man, he created him in his own image or her own image. That alone should offer a reason to be empathetic. If we are made in God's image, then we're all similar other than our color, our culture, our nationality. But as human beings, uh, we are the same. We are given the divine characteristics to act that way. Uh, and I would just suggest to you today, in a, today's world where so many healthcare providers are struggling with empathy and the toll it plays on them to see what's going on and not being able to cure everybody. Yeah, the incredible pain that they're holding, the incredible pain. And it's recognized as such in the medical literature uh, as being something that cannot be overlooked because it in the long end plays a huge role in people's ability to care for each other. Right. Right. Thank you, Dr. Leeds. Um, uh, and, uh, and it's interesting because one of the things that Micha said about the stranger is it, it's not the remember you were slaves in Egypt part that Micha talked about. He talked about yadatem et lev hager. You know the heart of the stranger. Right, yada from that really intimate, you know, knowing someone biblically. You know, Adam knew Eve is is about intimacy and really knowing that experience, and that's that is one of those places that Torah lifts up the gear, the stranger, as you know that feeling, and it might have been when you changed schools in third grade. It doesn't mean a stranger in Egypt, right? You know the heart of the stranger. Yadatem et lev hager. You know those experiences of feeling like the outsider, feeling like the vulnerable one, feel it, right? So and that, that, that's, that's the work, is to move to, you know those times, you know those experiences, and to empathize with people out of that. And halavai, it should only happen, speedily and in our day, that we get to a place where we see the other as created B'Tselem Elohim in the image of God, right? That we really do get it, that every human being is created B'Tselem Elohim. I think that one's even a bigger stretch then yadatem et lev hager, right? Like really seeing everybody is created in the divine image is really tough sometimes, right? Yeah, right at the beginning. It's a hard one, right. Well, um, if you didn't get the chance to listen to the lecture, I hope you will because it truly is, uh, it's, it was just a really delightful one. Um, uh, I'm going to do a couple more of these with you if you are up for that and are interested in that. We're going to do a couple more Hartman lectures. I'm going to be uh, doing, discussing Malila Helner Eshed's lecture on crisis. So thank you all for taking the time to be here and uh, for participating. And I will see hopefully most of you, if not all of you, uh, tomorrow morning for our Torah study at 10 o'clock.